Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Naples Weekly Sermon Podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by this week's message from Pastor Aaron Lapp. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. Lord God, I just thank you so much this morning for this time as we come together to praise you, to worship you, uh, Lord, through our singing, through our praying, Lord, through our study. We ask that you would bless this time, Lord, speak to us. Lord, prepare our hearts to hear today what it is that you would have for us, Lord, that you've already prepared for us in advance to hear. So we thank you, Lord, in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. I really do love this letter that John has written. Last week, we talked a little bit about why John wrote this letter at the time that he did, you know, and there were some things going on. This is not too much beyond the point where Jesus was crucified. You know, it's maybe 30 or 40 years later, and John has to write this letter and talk to the churches about some of the heresies that are, that are being introduced. Now, along with the heresies, there are some those who are trying to pull the Jewish believers back into Judaism. And there are some of the, the pagans who are trying to pull the Gentiles back into pagan worship. But along with that, there was some heresy going on. And we talked about that last week, the beginnings of Gnosticism, the secret knowledge, um, the idea that there's a separation between spirit and, and flesh or spirit and, and physical. And that... Um, the idea is like if you um, uh, can separate yourself from the, the fleshly part and just keep your mind on spiritual things, then whatever you do in the fleshly part of your life and the worldly part is fine. It's okay because God knows. God knows what your heart is saying. He knows what you're thinking. Um, you don't have to worry about the fleshly part. And it was a heresy that, that John will say, no, no. You know, first of all, Jesus came in the flesh. We saw him. We spoke to him. We touched him. He was in the flesh. He wasn't spirit only. He was flesh and spirit. But then the other part that John talks about in chapter one is the, that I really love is that he says, I write to you so that you can have fellowship with us and fellowship with God. And we talked about the idea of fellowship, that word koinonia uh, is a Greek word that we don't really have a great word to describe what koinonia means. So I have to use lots of words. It means like, yes, fellowship, but it means communion with one another. It means there's a closeness that's involved there that's, that's closer than just, oh, we're friends, we're acquaintances, we hang out sometimes. It's a sharing of your life with me and me with you. It's an understanding that if I'm hurting, you're going to come alongside me. And if you're hurting, I'm going to come alongside you. And, and sometimes we're going to celebrate the great joys and victories in our lives together because we're close. We're, we're close to one another. We have fellowship. And the idea is like that is what God wants to have with you as well. He uses the human interaction of fellowship as kind of an example to say, this is what I want to have for you. In fact, it's why I created you is so that we could have fellowship with one another. And then in verse four of chapter one, he writes that I write these things that your joy may be full. And, and we also talked last week about the difference between joy and happiness. Happiness is an emotion that's dictated by circumstances. You can be happy because your situation is good, or if your situation turns sour, maybe you're not happy, you're unhappy. But joy is beyond circumstances. Joy is a gift that God gives us that is from within. But he reminded me this week that it's even more than that. 
Joy is more than happiness. It's more than just a feeling that comes from within. In fact, in my daily devotion this past week, the Lord led me to Psalm 16, verse 11. This is what it says. And David writes this, In your presence is the fullness of joy. And he's talking to God. He says, in your presence is the fullness of joy. And so he's not just saying, oh, joy is an, an, a, a, a thing that's inside you. He says, joy is inside you, but it comes from being in my presence. The, in the presence of the Lord. Joy is in the presence of the Lord. And that is fellowship. You see, it's all kind of just congealing together. So what does it mean to be in the presence of the Lord? Do you want to be in the presence of the Lord? Does that mean that I have to unlock the church every single morning so you can come in and sit in your chair that you sit in each week and be like, okay, I'm in the presence of the Lord. And I'm going to tell you that it's not that joyful here when you all aren't here. It's kind of lonely and sad a little bit. And you just sit in this room and it's dark and there's, you know, 170 empty chairs in me. (laughs) And uh, it's not the place that brings you joy. Although I do believe that this is right now the presence of the Lord because we're gathered together in his name. And the Bible says that when two or more are gathered together in his name, that he's present. And so is the Lord present here? Yes, I believe he is. So are you joyful? Well, maybe because you are in the presence of the Lord. But you don't have to be here to be in the presence of the Lord. You could be in the presence of the Lord out there in other ways. How? Well, How about you believe that wherever you go, the Lord goes with you. He's with you wherever you are. And by the way, he's in control of what's going on in your life as well. How about you pray without ceasing? Do you know what that means, pray without ceasing? It doesn't mean that you're on your knees with your hands folded and you're looking up to the Lord for 24 hours. It doesn't mean that. Praying without ceasing means that you're in constant communication with God. Now, maybe it's out loud. Maybe you're walking around all day and you're just talking to some guy that nobody else sees, but you're just, you know, you're having a conversation. And you know what? I bet some of you do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Kathleen. But people already think Kathleen is crazy, so what has she got to lose? <laughs> but you don't have to be speaking out loud to God to be praying to, be talking to, be constantly in praying without ceasing to the Lord, but it's that constant communication. It's not just speaking to the Lord, it's listening to the Lord. It's saying, Lord, you know, you're in your car and you're listening to some really great worship song. And in that moment, the Lord says, you know what? I want you to reach out to Steve today. I want you to reach out to Sev today. And as a matter of fact, you know what I want you to do? I want you to send him this Bible verse. And I say, well, okay. And I take out my phone and I text a Bible verse to Steve. And you know what happens? He writes me back and he's like, Whoa, dude, that verse, I, I so needed that right at this second. How did you know? Did, your, did my wife call you? <laughs> you know what that does for me? My joy goes off the chart because I'm like, holy smokes, I'm in the presence of the Lord right now because I was obedient. I heard from him. I was praying without ceasing. Uh, I reached out to my brother because I was instructed to by the Lord. It made his day. It made my day. And everyone's joy is full. Amen. I love that. Being in the presence of the Lord, maybe it means that we're, we are to exhibit the characteristics of Jesus Christ to others in our lives. We're supposed to display the things, walk in the way that Jesus walked. Maybe it also means 
to remember to put others before yourself. Put others before yourself, being in the presence of the Lord. Well, in verse 1, in chapter 1, excuse me, John also makes it clear that there was um, sin introduced into the world and that every single person is born a sinner with the need for redemption, the need to be saved from our sin. And he talks about that. But he also talks about the fact that those sins that we commit, the acts of disobedience that we commit, also have forgiveness available through confession. He makes those two distinctions within the first chapter. He says, there is sin that we all need to be forgiven of that we were born with because through one man, it says in Romans, sin entered the world and we need a savior. In fact, he says in verse 10 of chapter one, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and the word is not in us. And what he's saying is, if you are one who says, I don't need saving, I, don't, I haven't done anything wrong, and I don't need saving at all. You make God a liar because God said all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All need a redeeming Savior. All need to be washed in the blood. But then he also says that when you sin, there is someone who is there for you. There is forgiveness. In fact, in verse 9 of chapter 1, he says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us from all unrighteousness. Whew. You know what I wrote in my note here? Can I get an amen? Amen. Amen. There we go. In in chapter 2, verse 1, my little children, he starts off with. Now, I'm wondering, like, John probably, like, got to the end of that. Like, he was just like, if you say that you have no sin, you have no, you're a liar and the world's not in you. I think he almost went, my little children. He takes a pause. My little children isn't him being condescending, saying, hey, I'm the great apostle John. I think think what the apostle John was wearing at that moment was this t-shirt. I think that he was thinking, I'm not awesome. He's awesome. I'm not. When he says, my little children, it's a word in Greek. If you look it up, it says that someone who is deeply loved. Um, Someone who is dear to me is what he's saying. You are dear to me. Let me tell you the truth. In fact, I love you so much, I love you enough to tell you the truth. It makes me sad when I read, um, um, someone will put a post on, on Facebook that says, uh, how can you call a Christian when you, you hate this group of people or you hate that group of people? And what they don't understand is, I don't hate them. Just because I disagree with them doesn't mean that I hate them. In fact, if I love them, I will tell them the truth. If I hated them, I would say, go to hell. I don't care. If I hated them, I would say, I don't care. Do whatever you want. I don't believe. You're on the road to hell. I hope you enjoy it. But I don't hate them. Now, what that also means is I love them enough to tell them the truth, even though they may hate me in return, even though they may be offended by what I have to say. Now, that also means that I need to go to them in a way that is loving, That is saying, I love you. That's why I'm telling you this. If you're sitting here and and, and maybe we have a conversation one day and I say, look, I just have to tell you what you're doing, that's sin. You have to stop that. It's not because I'm better than you. 
It's not because I'm trying to hold myself up over. It's just because I love you enough to say that's sin in your life. And we're going to see the consequence that unconfessed sin has in the life of a believer. My little children, he says, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. Now, wait a minute. A second ago, he said, these things I write to you so that your joy may be full. But now he's saying, uh, and now I write to you so that you don't sin. Well, which is it? Do I not sin or should my joy be full? Because I was really enjoying the full joy talk. And now all of a sudden you're saying, don't sin. So what are we talking about here? Well, here's the deal, okay? It's not one or the other, and it's not even both. They're the same. You understand what he's going to talk about is unconfessed sin in the life of the believer is a, is a breakdown of fellowship between you and God. Think of unconfessed sin as like building blocks in your life that you start to build a wall in between you and God. Now, look, I know that there's some people here who are probably thinking, uh, and will probably text me later, that will say, well, what about the word here where it says that nothing can separate you from the love of God? And then it lists all the things, not this, not this, not this. That's true. And I'm not talking about the love of God. You're not, as a believer, you're not separated from the love of God. But when you have unconfessed sin in your life, you are separated from fellowship with God. Let me give you an example. How many of you here at one point were children? Most. Okay, good. Only just, just only a few test tube uh, cloned adults. <clears throat> when you were a kid and, you're, and you did something that you knew your parents told you not to do, what happened to the relationship between you and your parents in that time? When you had unconfessed sin between you and your parents, did you want to be near them? Did you want, to be able, did you want your, your dad to look you in the eye? Did you want your mom to be, you know, be near you and looking you in the eye and saying, oh, I love you? Because the whole time you're thinking, oh, did this bad thing. And I'm not, I mean, you know, as long as it's unconfessed, you don't want to be near your parents. You don't want that relationship right now. And it is the same thing when you have unconfessed sin, you start to build a wall that, of, that blocks the fellowship between you and God. But confession is like a wrecking ball that comes in and just breaks down that wall and clears the way. So that, that fellowship is restored between you and God. And he's saying, look, I'm telling you this so that your fellowship isn't hindered, but is restored. So don't sin. Do you know that the Bible says, that as a believer, that God has given us the power to resist sin? Do you know that in Psalm 119, verse 11, David writes this, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. How do we resist the temptation to sin? We lean on and rely on the word of God. David said, I get it in my heart. So that if I face temptation and I, I'm, I'm starting to feel tempted to sin, I can call up the word of God and I can rely on that. Oh, man. Jesus was tempted by the devil in the wilderness. What did he do? He called on the word. Every single time he answered back with the word of God. It is written. It is written. It is written. He called on the word of of God. And so when you find yourself in that place of temptation, call upon the word of the Lord. If you submit yourself to God and resist the devil, he must flee from you, the word says. I pray that all the time. 
because maybe you don't know, but I'm not awesome, right? And so I face the same temptations as everybody, maybe more. And I'm constantly saying, Lord, I submit to you. That's, that's the first and most important part of that verse. I submit to you, Lord. Now I resist the devil. Now the devil flees. That's the submission to the Lord that you need to grasp a hold of. But that doesn't mean that we're not going to be tempted, and it doesn't mean that there is an occasion where we are going to give in to our flesh. There is going to be time when we actually do commit those acts of disobedience, those sins. They're going to happen. It's just a reality. But there are those that we know, and maybe you're one of these people, I don't know, that say this, well, we're not going to be perfect, so... What's this? What does this mean? So, finish the sentence. Well, we're not going to be perfect, so why should we really try? Should I really try? And I never heard anybody finish that sentence. I have heard before people say, well, we're never going to be perfect. I always hear that. I never hear the second part of that sentence from anybody. I'm going to start asking, like, would you just finish that sentence for me? What's that mean? So... I guess I'm not going to try anymore. See, the thing is the word sin, and we've been talking a lot about what it means, and, but literally what it means is miss the mark. And it's a word that they took <clears throat> from archery. When an archer pulled out his arrow and put it in his bow, aimed it, and shot it, if he missed the bullseye, it was called a sin. It's just the term. And so John uses it here very appropriately to say, when you miss the target. Now, would an archer ever say in a competition, well, I know I'm not going to hit the target perfectly, so I guess I won't even aim. How many times do you think an archer is going to hit the bullseye if he doesn't aim at the bullseye? How many times? None times. None times is the number that he will hit the target. Right? And so it's like saying, well, we're never going to be perfect, so I guess it's not really worth trying to live a life of holiness. You're not even trying? John says, you've been given the power to resist. Don't put up that wall. If you can help it, don't put up the wall. But if you do, there's forgiveness for sin if you confess. He is faithful and just to forgive you from all unrighteousness. Amen? Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Here's the thing. Being a Christian doesn't mean that you are sinless. But it does mean that you should sin less. If you do, and here is the compassion of God. Here's the compassion of God. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. The advocate there means counselor, like a lawyer. <laughs> Finally, my lawyers are in church. All right. Uh, or helper. The word means uh, counselor. It means helper. It means alongside of. Um, it means um, all of these things. Um, it's also the word in Greek, it's, it's parakletos. 
or paraclete. You know how I always remembered that? My, my Pastor Charlie up in New York, uh, because Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as this as well, I always picture a paraclete, uh, like <laughs> a parakeet <laughs> on, on my shoulder. Uh, paraclete or paracletus, it means helper, counselor. And Jesus would say of the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of John, he says, look, I'm going to go away. Um, but when I go, I'm going to pray to the Father, send you another helper, he says, another paracletus, the same word. Um, it is like, uh, like I said, it, they, they, here it's, it's advocate, helper, counselor. But when I see this, I, I kind of do picture um, a courtroom here. If anyone sins, we have a counselor with Jesus Christ the righteous. So it's like, kind of like this. Imagine you've got a courtroom and you've got um, God the Father as the righteous judge sitting there. And then you've got the devil, right? And the devil, it says in Revelation, is the, is the accuser of the brethren. Y'all are the brethren. And so there you've got Satan who's accusing you before the righteous judge, the Father. But you are over here, and you've got an advocate on your side, and his name is Jesus. That's what the word says. Jesus is your advocate. Now you've got the devil sitting over here, and he says, Your Honor, look at him. He's done it again. This is my devil voice. I'm not sure if it's... Look at it. He's failed again. He keeps doing the same thing over and over again. He's guilty, guilty, guilty. And then Jesus, your advocate, stands up and he says, Dad, (laughs) your honor, here's my client. I unequivocally can say he's guilty. Because guess what? Jesus isn't going to stand up and proclaim your innocence because you're not. You are guilty. He stands before the righteous judge and he says, my client is guilty. They deserve the penalty for their guilt. However, they're mine. They belong to me and I've already paid that debt. To which the devil goes, ah, storms out. Jesus, the righteous judge, uh, the father, the righteous judge, smacks his gavel down and he says, guilty is charged, but the penalty has been paid. You are free to go. However, just to be on the safe side, I'm putting you in, I'm releasing you into the custody of Jesus. Whoo, thank you, I'll take that. I will be released into the custody of Jesus, thank you. We have an advocate, and not just a really good one, The righteous, the perfect helper, the perfect advocate, counselor. In verse 2 it says, And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. I really love that word, propitiation. We don't use it enough, do we? I'm going to... The propitiation isn't just payment. It doesn't mean just payment. It's actually much deeper than that. See, and we don't don't use it, so we don't really understand. But at this time, they would understand, especially the Jewish believers, would understand propitiation because what it meant was it was a sin offering for the purpose of restoring fellowship with God. All of those words, that means propitiation, a sin offering made to restore fellowship with God. Now, doesn't that make sense where he's saying Jesus is the propitiation for our sins? Jesus is the sin offering that was made to restore our fellowship with God. I mean, do you see John's theme here of the importance of fellowship with God? It is why we were created. 
You go into the philosophy class at your local college, and when they put up there, like, who am I and why am I here? I know. We were here to be in fellowship with God and to worship him. That's, and then they'll be like, sir, could you please leave? <laughs> but not just for us. It says, look at that. And not for our sins only, but for the whole world. For the whole world, Jesus was the payment, the, the propitiation, the sin offering for restored fellowship for the whole world, not just Americans, not just the you know, people who um, you see right before you right now, but even for the most vile person out there. You know, and I, I, I am reminded by God of this, this fact that he died for the sins of the whole world especially when I see some despicable person um, do some despicable thing that I think, man, what a wretch. And then God says, that person is one prayer away from being a brother or a sister. One prayer away. Think about the, think about the politician that you can't stand the most. <laughs> you think you got him? You got him? That person's one prayer away from being your brother or your sister. <laughs> because he's the propitiation for the whole world. They have only to accept the gift that Jesus has out for them. They have only to accept it. The real challenge is he's probably saying, you know what, go and reach that person. All right, if you can. Go and reach that person. How many of you, if that person were standing right across from you in, in line or you were at some rally or something, how many of you would actually go over there and say, look, I don't really like you, <laughs> but I love you enough to tell you that Jesus died for your sins. Again, they would say, could you please leave? <laughs> Now, verse 3, by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. How do we know that you know? Well, I just know, you know. <laughs> Here's the thing. Those who know him do not take advantage of his grace. See, it's like this. They'd say, since I know he'll forgive me no matter what I do and no matter how many times I do it, I can do whatever I like. In fact, aren't I kind of helping God out? I mean, doesn't it say somewhere in Romans that the more I sin, the more God gets to show off his grace? I'm helping God out by being sinful. Well, that's a loose interpretation of Romans. I'm going to actually read it so you don't leave here thinking that that's true. Paul would write this. He says, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So... That sin might reign in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Do you see what he's saying? He's, 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 he's asking the same question. Well, so maybe I should just be really sinful so that God has the opportunity to show how much grace he has to pour out. And, you know, I'm kind of helping him out. Plus, I, you know, I get to do whatever I want. And what does Paul say in verse 2? Certainly not. Certainly not. You could translate it. Are you out of your mind? How shall we who died to sin live any longer in sin, Paul would write. 
Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. This is what we would call a counterfeit Christian. Someone who says, I'm a Christian, but there is nothing about their life that would actually show that they are following him. A counterfeit Christian. Think about it like this. Let's say you had a $50 bill. Now, unbeknownst to you, that $50 bill is counterfeit. You didn't know it. You go to the gas station and you buy, I don't know, like a half a tank of gas, $50. That gas station attendant uh, owner takes that money and with that money he buys supplies for his convenience store. All right. Then the, the grocery store that he bought stuff, he takes that money and or the store owner goes to the grocery store and buys groceries for his family. And then that grocery store takes that money and he bundles it all up with all the other money he got that day and he goes to the bank. And to deposit. Now, upon inspection, the person at the bank looks at it and it says, no, no, this one's not good. This is counterfeit. It's not good. Now, that $50 did some good things along the way. But when it came to the final inspection, it was rejected because it was not real. That's the counterfeit Christian. It says in the Bible that on the last days, there will be some who come to Jesus and say, didn't we do things in your name, didn't we cast out demons? Didn't we heal the sick? Did, Lord, I mean, come on. And he'll say, no, I, didn't, I don't know you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity and lawlessness. They may have done some good things along the way, and they might have even done it in the name of Jesus. But he's saying, they don't know me. They're counterfeit. And in the last days, they are inspected and rejected because he doesn't know them. But in verse 5, he who keeps his word. Truly the love of God is perfected in him. The word keep there, by the way, in verse 4 and in verse 5, it doesn't mean like keep. It means observe and do. That's what that means. It says that those who say, I know him, but don't do his commandments is a liar. Those who, whoever who does his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this, we know that we are in him. There should be evidence in the life of a person who has given their life over to Jesus Christ. I'll give you an example. There's a, a young uh, person that I know who will call me occasionally and, and want to tell me some really great thing that's happened in their life. And she'll say, well, I was talking to this person and we were having this conversation about something completely unrelated to anything spiritual. And then she'll say, and then I found out that they were a believer and then it was really cool. And then we prayed together and it was a really great conversation. And what I will say to her is, how do you know that she was a believer? And I'm not, I'm not accusing her and I'm not doubting her. I'm leading her in a conversation of how do you know? And she'll say, oh, well, because I said this and this and this. And then that person said, oh, are you a believer? And then she said, well, yes, I am. And I said, do you see that your conversation is peppered with Christ? You exude the spirit when you speak. You don't have to have a shirt on that says, hey, I'm a Christian. You don't have a sign that says Christian here. The very conversation that you have, the words that you use, the things that you say spill out from the place of being filled with the Holy Spirit and it's genuine and other people recognize it in her and say, you're a Christian, aren't you? You're a believer, aren't you? In essence, this verse is saying that or let me put it this way. I have often heard my wife say to uh, 
young single women, listen, it's not what a guy says, it's what a guy does. And her indication is that, her implication is that it doesn't matter what he says he's into or does or believes in, but it will be evidenced in his life. He, he tells you that he really has a great relationship and loves his mother. Does it show in his life? Do, have you seen him actually be kind to his mother? If he says, oh, I love kids. Does he? Have you seen any evidence of the fact that he loves kids? Or when the kids are around us, he's just like, don't touch my car. In James, James writes this, faith without works is dead. All right, but listen, that isn't James's prescription or instruction on how to live a genuine Christian life. It is his observation of a genuine Christian life. Do you understand the difference? He's not saying that a, Christian, a genuine Christian life will include works, uh, must include works. He's saying that it will include works. It's his observation, not his instruction. He's saying that when you look at a Christian, it shouldn't be that they have to pronounce it to everyone. Their life will show it through the things that they do. You cannot have a true relationship with Jesus and it not change your life. Now, it doesn't all happen at the same time and to the same degree for every person. Some people's lives are drastically changed. My pastor in New York was an alcoholic and a drug user, was introduced to Jesus, accepted him, and he was done with drugs and alcohol. But I have seen other people who have accepted Christ but still struggle with some of those temptations. Now, you may look at a person's life and you may say, I don't know about that guy. You may not know him, but you may look at his life and be like, Ah, he doesn't look like he's a Christian. But God might say to you, but you didn't see where I started with him. He's come so far. There's been so much change. Just give him a chance. But there is change. What does that change look like? Well, here's the, here it is. Christians no longer love sin like they used to love sin. A Christian no longer plans to sin like they used to plan to sin. Christians no longer embrace sin like they used to embrace sin. A Christian may still sin, but the, the immediately after, there's a misery that sets in. There's a conviction from the Holy Spirit that weighs on them that immediately they think, oh, I knew I shouldn't have done that. I, I, I was weak. And, and it drives you to confession. In fact, the most miserable person I think that you will ever meet is a Christian who tries to go back to an old lifestyle because now they've got the presence of the Holy Spirit convicting them constantly. They may try to convince themselves that it's all good, but they will be miserable. Here's an example. Have you ever gone into your closet and seen a pair of pants, an old pair of jeans, that you don't wear anymore, but that you used to wear a long time ago, and you're thinking, I can still fit those probably, and you take those out, and they're like acid wash, and they're ripped, you know? And you're just like, I'm gonna get these on. And you're like pulling them up. And then you're, <laughs> and then you're like, oh yeah. 
<laughs> I'm looking good. And they feel so good. You don't look good. I'm telling you right now, you don't look good. You look ridiculous. And number two, they don't feel good, do they? Honestly, it doesn't feel good. You just pull on a pair of pants and you're just like, oh my goodness. Oh, it's like a pair of pants. I haven't worn them in years. I walked away from those pants, but now I'm trying to put them back on and I'm uncomfortable and I'm miserable, but I'm trying to convince myself that I'm happy in these old tight I mean, I'm, not, I'm just assuming. I'm just from my own perspective. Maybe I knew they're just really loose. I don't know. They're just like big baggy pants. Either way, it's not you anymore. It doesn't fit anymore. You're not comfortable anymore. And you may try and convince yourself that you are, but you're not, and you're miserable. Then what Jesus says is, yank off those old pants and put on the ones with the elastic waistband and, and embrace the forgiveness of the Lord. <laughs> oh my goodness. Uh, he says, He who says he abides in him ought himself to also walk just as Jesus walked. Do you know the word abide? It means to remain, right? To stay, to, to live with. The idea that he is saying, he who abides with him, meaning Jesus, he who remains with, stays with, has fellowship with Jesus. Are you seeing the theme here? A theme of fellowship that John keeps writing about that God wants with us? He who has fellowship in him, also himself, also to walk just as he walked. Well, how did Jesus walk? I think it was like this. No, that's silly. That's not right. It doesn't mean how did he actually walk. It means like when he was there, what was he like? What did he do? What was his outward that they would see? Well, these are the things I wrote down. He loved people. He loved people. He was selfless. He prayed a lot. He knew the word of God and he was obedient he wants us to love people. He wants us to be selfless. He wants us to pray a lot. He wants us to know God's word and be obedient. He wants us to walk in the way that he walked. I really love that phrase, walk in the way that he walked. Do you know that early on, Christians weren't called Christians? That came later in Antioch. They were referred to as Christians and not in a nice way. It was like a, a derogatory name, Christians. It meant like little Christs. Oh, look at these little Christs. Well, at some point, the believers were like, yeah, that's good. Little Christ, I'll take that. I'm, 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 you, you, it's, it's a compliment, really. Well, you look at me and you see that I'm like Jesus. Thank you. I'll take that. But actually, before they were called Christians, they were called the followers of the way. Followers of the way meant that they were followers of the Jesus guy that was walking around here. In fact, in John's gospel, John is kind of, Jesus is talking to the, his disciples, and he's like, look, there's going to come a time when uh, I'm not going to be here. In fact, I'm going to go. 
I'm going to prepare a place for you so that wherever I am, you can be. And then when it's ready, I'm going to come back and I'm going to get you. And Thomas says, well, Lord, I mean, we don't know where you're going. How could we know the way? And Jesus says, I'm the way. I am the way. And essentially, he's saying, walk in the way that I walked. Walk in me and in the way that I walked. There's a lot of instruction that John is giving them about a Christian um, isn't, you know, you can't be counterfeit. You can't say I'm a Christian and then not live in a way that reflects being a Christian. So there seems to be quite a bit of confusion, even at this time, on what it means to be a Christian. But I think that's not so different than now. Would you agree? There There are people now that say, well, I'm not Jewish. I'm not a Muslim. I'm not a Mormon. I guess I must be Christian. Or some say, well, I'm an American Christian. Sorry. Or this. And I've heard this a lot. Well, I was born a Christian. And my great-grandfather was a Christian, and my grandfather was a Christian, and my father was a Christian. I was, I'm, I was born a Christian. No, you weren't. Jesus would say to Nicodemus in that, that nighttime meeting that everyone needs to be born again. You're not born a Christian. You have to be born again to be a Christian. He says everyone has to be born of water and spirit. Water is physical birth. Spirit is rebirth, born again. And so you can't be born a Christian. You need to be born again a Christian. That's how it works. Uh, being a Christian isn't being a not Muslim. Being a Christian isn't being a not Jew or a not Mormon. You are not a Christian by default. You are a Christian by the blood. <laughs> that is to say, a Christian is one who has been washed in the blood of Jesus, who follows after him and walks as he walked. Amen. Amen. We're going to stop there for today. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you so much for this chapter this morning, Lord, and the things that you've showed us. Lord, I pray that we all would be challenged as we go out today to walk in the way that you walked, Lord, to, to remember to love, to remember to pray, to remember to hide your word in our hearts so that we might be able to resist temptations when they come into our lives. But when we do succumb to those, Lord, I pray that we would immediately go to confession so that we do not build up a wall between uh, ourselves and you, Lord, and hinder our fellowship. Lord, I see fellowship all throughout this half chapter. Fellowship with you is your desire, Lord. That is why you created us to worship you and to fellowship with you. Oh, Lord, I love that. Lord, I pray that we would just be so mindful of that as we go out of here this morning and face the week. Lord, help us to remember that we are to be in your presence where that, that's where we find the fullness of joy. Thank you, Jesus. In your name, Lord, we pray. Amen. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org.